There was a little bit of a change that took place in that Dr. Oz Guinness was not able to come to the conference because he was speaking at the uh, National Prayer Breakfast just prior and contracted laryngitis. And so he was not able to speak and so he wasn't able to come to the conference. And uh, we were uh, uh, sad about that for the conference sake, but also because we had lined him up to speak during Sunday school today. Uh, and uh, we have a very uh, great uh, uh, fill-in for Dr. Guinness this morning. Uh, Doug Grudius is here and I want to introduce him to you. Many of you probably know him. Uh, He is a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. Uh, He did his bachelor's of science and his PhD work at the University of Oregon. Uh, Go Mighty Ducks, right? Um, But uh, he also did his master's of arts in philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So not only go Ducks, but go Badgers. Uh, I don't know if we're any Madison UW fans that are here. Uh, mostly, uh, yeah, I hear some. I hear some thumbs down. Uh, some Big Ten people that are not uh, Wisconsin fans here. I can tell. Uh, Doug has written a number of different books and articles on apologetics and postmodernism and philosophy. And in 2011, he wrote a very substantial uh, volume on Christian apologetics. I encourage you to check that out. Uh, he has uh, very graciously and on short notice uh, been willing to fill in for us this morning. And so I believe he's going to tie in with some things that he spoke at the conference. Doug, please come and, and teach us this morning. Good morning, everyone. Why don't we begin with a brief moment of silence and prayer? Lord, you are our God, our King. We are grateful that you've given us your revelation in the Bible, that we might know you. We thank you that the Bible is sufficient for what we need to know about you and salvation and the moral life, the life of your kingdom. We ask, Lord, that these great doctrines of the Reformation would stir us again to do great works through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The theme of the Labrique conference that I was at was the transforming power of the Reformation. And this talk is called Spiritual Transformation Through the Five Reformation Doctrines. And I mean the five solas of the Reformation. And I've been introduced to this many, many years ago. I think probably... The biggest impact was a book by Richard Lovelace called Dynamics of of Spiritual Life. And he very carefully went through the primary and secondary conditions of renewal and revival. And right at the heart of that was an understanding of justification and sanctification and so on. And of course, Schaeffer lived this out, being a man of the Reformation, as he said, Francis Schaeffer and carefully distinguish justification from sanctification. What I would like to do is go through the five solas of the Reformation quickly, but then emphasize that they have the power to change our lives for the better, because God works through truth in the inner person, and then we bring that out into the world. Let me start with a familiar passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore... 
I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Spiritual transformation requires truth taking root and bearing fruit in the inner being. You cannot have spiritual transformation for the good that pleases God and serves others and changes the world without the objective truth that God has revealed. What exactly is spiritual transformation? Let me use Schaefer's term, true spirituality. By this I mean biblical and practical truths guide us in relation to God and his ways. That's what it means to be truly spiritual. And then to become more like Christ by being filled with the Holy Spirit and living in accordance with God's holy word. Now notice I didn't say anything about particularly subjective experiences or spiritual goosebumps. God does make himself present to us, sometimes in a palpable way. But the foundation, or to put it another way, the framework, needs to be what is true about God and about ourselves and the relationship that God has established with us through his Son and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are many false spiritualities. That is, an inner orientation to the sacred based on a false worldview. Spirituality today can mean almost anything to anyone. And people will say, I don't believe in organized religion. I have my own spirituality. And I want to say, then your spirituality is probably disorganized. Because we need the tradition of Christianity. Primarily, we need scripture and sound teaching and preaching to shape our souls. We need a body of truth and a body that goes throughout the ages. The church, terrible as an army with banners, as C.S. Lewis put it. So let me give you a text that warns us about false spirituality. This is Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. So beware of false, deceptive, misleading philosophies. Now, of course, this is not a condemnation of all philosophy. Paul engaged the philosophers in Acts 17 and did so with great wisdom and effect. But beware of false philosophy and the false spirituality that comes out of that. Again, 1 John chapter 4. The apostle says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Now that's a sharp, strong warning. There's truth, true spirituality. There's falsehood, false spirituality. Now, 
let me talk about three basic dimensions of salvation, and then we'll get into the five solas of the Reformation. We need to keep these straight. They are interrelated, but they're not the same thing. The first is justification. Through the work of Christ, his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, we are put right with God, meaning that our sins are forgiven, and much more. We're adopted into God's family, but we are forensically declared not guilty. So God has nothing against us. Our penalty was paid by Christ. Our debt was paid by Christ. Justification is once for all. Your justification does not increase or decrease. Now, justification in other spheres of life does increase and decrease. You might say your justification to be elected to a political office or your justification in terms of being a scholar. But this is a declaration of not guilty. So Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And we should glorify God for that. And that is the starting point. That is the rock foundation of the Christian life. What Christ has done for us to set us right with God. Secondly, there's sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Christ and more obedient to the Scripture, more filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a process. That can wax and wane through a Christian's life. But your sanctification grows out of your justification. You can't become more Christ-like, filled with the Spirit, without knowing who Christ is and responding to him on his terms. And all this is through the grace of God, God's largesse of goodness towards us, though we are sinners. Christ died for us. And then finally, glorification, which has to do with the eradication of sin from our lives and the glory, the greatness, the holiness we will experience in the new heavens in the new earth, and the new earth, Revelation 21:22. This is a place, a real objective historical reality where there is no curse, no sin, and no tears. Now let yourself imagine that sometime. What a promise. And it is as sure as the resurrection of Christ. We take all of our sorrows, our disappointments, the pain and life which sometimes seems to make life unbearable and realize that it's in the past and we can get a more heavenly perspective on all of it at that time. Godly transformation requires believing biblical teaching and orienting oneself to God on that basis and with the saints, with the blood-bought people of God in the church. Well, I hope I've established a few things here, so let's go on and talk about the five basic teachings of the Reformation. There are more than these teachings, obviously, but these are foundational to everything that happened when the church began to reclaim its biblical authenticity. And we're celebrating now the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door. And by the way, those are well worth reading. And I often think of the first of those theses, which is the Christian life is a life of repentance. Not merely repentance to become a Christian, but an ongoing awareness of the being and character of God and then adjusting ourselves accordingly. 
The first is sola scriptura, which is a Latin phrase for scripture only. This was emphasized in distinction from scripture plus tradition. So we're talking about the source of authority. We're talking about a norm. And the reformers discovered that while the church of the day had retained many significant and important truths from scripture, a lot had been added that was not biblical, such as the doctrine of purgatory or indulgences. And the doctrine of indulgences is what really flamed Martin Luther to go back to the scripture and to see what the gospel was. Now, this is how the Westminster Confession puts the authority of the Bible. And I imagine a few of you are familiar with this document. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And, therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Westminster Confession, chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures. So, Scripture is authoritative in and of itself. It is not made authoritative by the church. Rather, the church receives it and recognizes it and proclaims it and defends it as authoritative. So, it is the final and without error authority. This is significant because this becomes our standard to test other claims. I read 1 John 4 about test the spirits to see if they are from God. And the test is one concerning the nature of Christ. Has Christ come in the flesh? If a teacher says no, he has not come in the flesh, or something else like many have come in the flesh, not just Christ, then you know, given the standard, did you reject this as false? So, sola scriptura is not some kind of constricting limit on our spirituality. It's rather an infallible guide. So we can discern. We can make distinctions. Let me read you a classic scripture on this. 2 Timothy 3, 15-17. Paul is writing to young Timothy, the leader. From infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Speaking of the Hebrew Bible here. But by extension, we can apply it to the whole scripture, including the New Testament. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's not simply some kind of authority that we put in a museum and then visit it once in a while. The scripture teaches us, it guides us, it compels us, it rebukes us. So it is an infallible standard that is deeply pertinent to the entirety of life. All scripture is God-breathed, that is, God-inspired, literally inspired the writers, breathed life into the writers to write exactly what he wanted them to write for that day and actually for all eternity. And I think sometimes we don't thank God enough that he has revealed himself in the Bible. We have a sure and unitary source of knowledge, which is sufficient for saving knowledge, the saving knowledge of Christ and how to live our lives. So I just want to thank God right now in prayer for the scripture. Lord, we are unworthy recipients of your truth. However, 
by your great love, you have disclosed yourself in nature, in Christ, and in the Holy Scriptures. We are grateful that you've given us this tremendous resource that we can obey and find confidence and solace in. in Christ's name, amen. Now, this is transformative for us, obviously, because if it is the sole standard to test other truth claims, and if it is pertinent to the whole of life, then we ought to learn it. We ought to know it. And this church and the denomination of this church is very strong on biblical preaching, biblical exposition, and bringing the Bible into life. And we should be grateful to that. However, we personally, one-on-one, in groups and by ourselves, need to be studying the Scripture. I've been a Christian now for almost 41 years. And I have read the Bible, memorized parts of it, refer to it often in my writing, of course, in my teaching. But I have to pinch myself sometimes. I have to motivate myself, that is, to keep reading, keep learning, keep studying. Realize there are parts of the Bible I'm a bit weak in. Some years ago, I had a Bible and I looked at the side. Maybe you've done this. You look at the side and you see which part of it is yellow because it's got a lot of finger grease on it and which parts are white. That will tell you where you're not reading the Bible. <laughs> of course, mine were all yellow. You know. <clears throat> this is just for you lower people that don't know everything. So, sola scriptura doesn't mean that truth is not found elsewhere. All truth is God's truth, but we have a standard for testing truth. The second is solus Christus, that is Christ only as opposed to Christ and the church. Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. He is the one who saves us. He uses the body of Christ to bring the message, to teach the people. But he is the only source of salvation. This is from John Calvin. You may have heard of him here. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to him. So the whole Scripture is Christocentric. Christ is there in every teaching of the Scripture. And this is a real strength of Reformed theology that not all Christians hold. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul say in another passage that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Christ is the greatest and final and unimpeachable revelation of God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, there's a whole sermon series just in that passage. But the supremacy 
of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ. Solus Christus. Let me also read John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So we see in these doctrines that you have the scriptures alone as the final authority and the scriptures teach us who God is and show us the reality of Jesus Christ. And you see that Christ has credentials and achievements that no one else has. So this is not, well, I resonate with Christ and some people are interested in Buddha or Lao Tzu or Muhammad. This is the man, the God-man, who is utterly unique and worthy, therefore, of praise and service and worship and sacrifice. Solus Christus. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's a bit repetitive, isn't it? To make the point, Peter is preaching in a very hostile situation. Salvation is found in no one else. Now you could just stop there. We got it. But he goes on. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Christ is the agent of salvation. And we thank him. Three, three of five, sola gratia, grace alone, versus the notion that we are saved, we are set right with God through grace and works. I love this quote from Martin Luther. Either sin is lying on your shoulders or on Christ, the Lamb of God. According to law and justice, your sins should no doubt remain on you, but grace has cast them upon Christ. I was just talking to someone yesterday who was explaining the doctrine of grace to someone uh, unexpectedly in an apologetic encounter. And the, the idea of grace, Daniel, you're telling me, for this man was difficult to fathom. You had to explain it two or three times in different ways. We don't live in a very uh, gracious culture. There's demands. Do this. Do that. You didn't do this. You're not measuring up. But grace is the giving of God's gift. Not according to merit. Not according to what we deserve. It's the greatest gift imaginable. And here's a classic scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now think about that phrase. It is not from yourself. Some people would take this as demeaning, as hurting your self-image. But it's actually liberating. Because you cannot find perfection you cannot find eternal life within yourself. It's actually from God. And so we receive it. We don't work our way up. As Francis Schaeffer said, we lift the empty hands of faith to receive this grace. So this puts an end to trying to actualize self-potential apart from God. It puts the end to self-deceit. 
Self-deception. I know I'm great. I can imagine myself great. I can do great things because I'm great. Well, the cross says you're made in the image and likeness of God. God loves you. But the source of salvation, the work of salvation is outside of yourself. This is not from yourself. But it can be received. And if it's received, you become a different kind of self. Fourth point. Sola fides, or faith alone, versus faith plus works as giving us a right standing with God. This is Martin Luther's statement, pretty well known. At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. Here you have this monk who was so earnest to confess his sins, he would go to his confessor and he'd start to walk away and then he would sin some more in his thoughts and he would come back to the confessor and he realized that this was a gift through the grace of God. It was received. It was not earned. could not be earned in any way. So it's sometimes said that Christ plus anything else is nothing. Christ plus nothing is everything in terms of being rescued from our sin, delivered from the power of the devil, being declared righteous by God. And now a text from the Apostle Paul. This is from Galatians. If I can find it. Or actually Romans. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, to the one who does not work but trusts God, uh, their faith is credited as righteousness. What a revolution. What a different orientation to life, to God, than trying to earn God's favor. Or just forgetting about God and trying to build up your self-image. This is freeing. This empowers us. And this is what we need to bring to the world. The Reformation is not over. We need to be reforming ourselves. It's a reformed church always reforming. And there's a wonderful Latin phrase for that, which I forgot. (laughs) I'm sure our pastor knows. Semper Reformanda. Say you reformed people are so smart. I I don't even know why I'm up here. Thank you very much. And the fifth sola... Solus Dio Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And this opposes the idea of glorifying God plus glorifying the church in a way that really usurps the glory of Christ. Here's a quote from John Calvin. Rome has destroyed the glory of Christ in many ways by calling upon the saints to intercede when Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man, by adoring the Blessed Virgin, when Christ alone shall be adored, 
by offering a continual sacrifice in the mass, mass rather, when the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is complete and sufficient, by elevating tradition to the level of scripture, and even making the word of Christ dependent for its authority on the word of man. For the glory of God alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God is to be worshipped and glorified. God gave us the church. We are part of the church, the body of Christ. We should love one another, serve one another, worship, hear the word of God, partake of the ordinances of the church, and be thankful for God's church in the world. But our ecclesiology has to always be centered in the living God and never become a thing in itself or some kind of a mechanism that just dispenses grace for the glory of God alone. Now, how does this pertain to us? First, we should obviously stay true to the truth. Jesus said, if you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth is being lost in our culture. Schaefer talked about this a long time ago. He said we need to emphasize true truth. That is, what is true, whatever people think about it. The objective facticity of something. We hear so many strange statements about truth now. About ten years ago, a term was coined called truthiness. If you remember that. I mean, it's all sort of right, but I made part of it up, but don't worry about it. Truthiness. Well, the Bible doesn't give us truthiness. It gives us truth. And it tells us the difference between truth and error, between life and death, between Christ and Antichrist, between grace and works. There's a strong antithesis there. That which is true, that which is false. Follow the truth, avoid and expose what is evil. We should also meditate on and teach and defend these five doctrines of the Reformation. Simply go through them and think about the significance of them. And consider the scriptures, obviously. That's the most important that supports these truths. Justification is profoundly significant in the entirety of the Christian life. Because however we feel concerning our relationship with God... Whatever mood we're in, we are accepted by God because of the finished work of Christ. If we have truly repented and had faith. And our faith may wax and wane. The Westminster Confession speaks to this. You can be elect and wonder whether or not you're elect. Because our faith is somewhat unstable subjectively. But thank God it's not based on us. It's based on Christ who said on the cross, it is finished. And a man came to Jesus in the Gospels and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus did not reject him or say, get behind me, Satan. That's another passage. He ministered to him. He blessed him. And sometimes that is what we pray. I pray that fairly often. Lord, I believe. I'm not going anywhere else. You have the words of eternal life. But help my unbelief. And he does. So if you know that you're justified, 
you realize that God will never love you more or less than he does now through the work of Christ. His love does not go up and down in accordance with your behavior. Now, Scripture challenges us, obviously, to seek first the kingdom, to love God with all of our being and our neighbors and ourselves. We all fall very short of that. But we come back to who we are in Christ. And we have a basis to ask for forgiveness, to know we are forgiven, and to continue to be sanctified, continue to try to extend Christ's kingdom in every way, in every sphere of life. We need to be very careful not to synthesize biblical truth with false teachings. This is very common. It's kind of a smorgasbord mentality. I'll take a little bit from Christianity, a little bit from Buddhism, a little bit from Taoism, make a lot of things up just myself for fun, and then you put this all together, and that's my spirituality. Well, spirituality is only as good as it's true, and we need truth to relate rightly to God and everything else. So consider these very strong words from the Apostle Paul from Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Many continue to try to pervert the gospel of Christ. We need to be truth seekers, truth tellers. We need to continue to study the scripture, learn from our Reformation heritage through tremendous documents like the Westminster Confession, catechisms, and so on. Learn from the great Christian writers. We just had this Labrie conference, and of course Labrie was founded by Francis and Edith Schaefer. I continue to be inspired by them and emphasize so many of their themes because they were earnest biblical reform people. And, of course, I don't have the time to do this, but these five solas are all deeply biblical and logical. I've defended that to some extent. We need truth to transform the world. We need truth to be transformed. And the five solas uh, were a gracious gift from God in a time when these tremendous truths had been neglected. They were there in the Bible, and they were there in church history, but they had been both neglected and they had been covered over by merely human teachings. Things like purgatory, uh, asking the saints to pray for you, and so on. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's not a limiting idea that doesn't tie us up in doctrine. That sets us free to know who our authority is, where our salvation is found, and for whom we serve. Questions or comments? Not sure I'm doing on time. I have six minutes. <laughs> Not to be too fussy about it. Questions or comments on this? Um, additions? Yes, sir. Uh, one of the things that we're faced with in, in uh, this time is the idea of uh, what you brought out is uh, uh, taking parts of Scripture. <laughs> Uh, but mixing it with one's own ideas and, and, and creating spirituality. I was at a, a church. My son is uh, taking cello lessons, and uh, on, the, on the front of the church it says, we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. Um, I wonder if you could speak hmm. a little bit about how to approach that. In, because we obviously um, um, are not just dealing with 
unbelievers. We're dealing with people that have some semblance of the truth, but then are essentially taking parts of it and pushing it away. Right. Well, that statement is pretty ambiguous. We want to take the Bible seriously and interpret it properly. Some things are stated as literal facts, and the Bible has allegories, and it has metaphors and similes. It's a book of literature that's inspired by God. But given the way it's put, I'm sure that that church denies the ultimate authority of Scripture. Sola Scriptura, God's ultimate authority. It's inspired. It's without error and so on. I would take that to mean they deny that. But in another context, I would say I take the Bible seriously, and I take what's meant to be literal as literal, and I take the poetry and the figures of speech to be what they are, as intended by the human author and the divine author. But it's a bad sign. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else? Yes? I just appreciate that, although for many of us probably grown up, or as you said, with our denomination, and maybe for myself, bringing in the traditions, Westminster Confessions, etc., having been through seminary, it's just always good to come back. And... um, Remind ourselves of God's grace, His authority, of Scripture, and you know, Christ alone, faith. So I just appreciate that. Well, you're welcome. It was good for me to go back and prepare some things on this. Uh, when Jock said the theme of this conference would be the Reformation, it just kind of clicked in my mind. Let's go back to the solos and see how it transforms us and can transform the world as we live out these truths in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Anything else, folks? have been very attentive, especially the baby. <laughs> From the mouths of babes. Yes, I will. Thank you. <coughs> Lord, we are grateful for the revelation you've given us that you are not a God far away, but you are with us and we can understand something of you. Lord, may we live according to grace and faith. May we be people of Scripture who understand and who put into practice what you've called us to do. Make us bold towards our friends and neighbors to declare and defend and explain these great truths. Lord, please, as Schaefer said, shake the world again by the power of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. amen.